Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. From type tales to type fails, this is the first in a 10-part series of an incomplete history of type. By exploring the history of type one face at a time, we get an intimate look at the people and the stories behind the letter forms. We've asked important questions to get to the bottom of each story, such as, where, out of this world, can Futura be found? How did Helvetica get its name? Who was Mrs. Zapf Chancery? Why fundamentally do so many people loathe papyrus? When did Jonathan Hofler know he'd really made it? What is typographer Nadine Chaheen doing that is so needed in the world of type right now? But remember, this is an incomplete history of type. There are too many incredible and influential type designers that have lived and worked in the past 500 plus years that it's impossible to tell the complete history. So we'll run with the idea that we're learning the incomplete history of type. Some of the featured type designers may even seem like odd choices, but each has a story to tell. They were influenced by the work that came before them, and they influenced the work that came after them. Each of these designers have made waves in their own unique ways and disrupted the status quo, helping to shape the look of letter forms found everywhere in our modern world. Stay on the lookout for one character in particular, Mr. Herman Zapf. Zapp finds himself playing the leading role in one episode featuring a typeface he designed in the 1970s and in supporting roles in the 1990s and into the new millennium. Zapf is someone who influenced an entirely new generation of type designers from across the globe and indirectly impacted faces that have changed the world's letter forms. From the Middle Ages to the Middle East, from Futura to Freight, Join us on a journey across the type universe and go where no designer has gone before. Welcome to an incomplete history of type. First up, let's look backwards more than 500 years to learn the significance of Gutenberg's black letter. Name, black letter. Specifically, Donatus calendar. Release date, 1455. Designer, Johannes Gutenberg. Classification, black letter. Owned by no one in particular. Claim to fame. This was the world's first mechanized typeface used in the world's first mass-produced book. I had the extreme good fortune of seeing a Gutenberg Bible in person and it didn't disappoint. There are fewer than 50 copies left in the world and I happened to see my Gutenberg Bible at the epicenter of Gutenberg's world on the site where the book was produced in Mainz, Germany. 
spectacular. It's not an exaggeration to say that this book, along with the technologies that made it happen, including the black letter mechanized font used throughout it, made possible for us to exist as we are today. So today, let's have a look at black letter. I'm going to start by taking us on a tangent. The odds of winning the lottery are approximately one in about 14 million. The odds of winning the life lottery are so improbable that it's actually incalculable, yet each of our lucky numbers were drawn the day we were born. A few years ago, while reading Neil Pesrisha's best-selling work, The Book of Awesome, I was reminded of how totally crazy it is that we're actually alive. Your father will produce approximately 525 billion sperm, gross, sorry, in his lifetime. You were one of those sperm. For your unique self to have come from 500 plus billion sperm, while at the same time having met your mother and combining with one of her 300 to 400 ovulated eggs is completely unlikely. Pair that with the fact that your mother or father could have procreated with a billion or more other people different from one another, and that number becomes astronomical. Let's take it one step further and understand that you exist on Earth today, not 100 or 1,000 years ago, and it's arguably the best time to be alive in the history of the planet as human beings. Our descendants have existed in each and every century before us for the last 200,000 years or so, but we get to experience today's world. And for those of us who also live in a wonderful place like Canada, our odds of living here are incredibly slim, as only about half a percent of the world's population lives in this country. So one in about every 200 people on the planet. It's all pretty incredible. So where am I going with this? Well, it's entirely likely that you and I would not exist if Gutenberg hadn't created the black letter typeface, invented the type mold, and commercialized printing when he did. So let's have a look at black letter. Black letter is the typeface used to print the world's very first commercially printed book using movable type, the Gutenberg Bible. Blackletter type was created to mimic handwritten scribes' work and look like calligraphic text. Now, technically speaking, blackletter is the overarching classification category. The subcategory is textura, more on that in a second, and the specific style of blackletter metal type used for the Gutenberg Bible is called Donatus Calendar, or DK for short which was rarely replicated or used in metal type since the days of Gutenberg. Blackletter typefaces are also sometimes called Gothic or Old English typefaces. These faces are characterized by dense black texture, and they have very highly decorative capital letters. All of the letter forms contain dramatic stroke contrast within their serifed forms. There are four major categories or families within the black letter category. They are textura, rotunda, schwabacher, and fracture. It's important to know that these four categories exist with subtle differences, especially apparent in the letter O. So you can go check out 
an example of the letter O and how that looks different between each of the four at www.talkpaperscissors.info in the show notes. Let's take a closer examination now of each of the four. First up is textura. So this dates back to the 11th century, and it's a foundational form of black letter that came into its own and occurred as there was a boost in literacy across Europe. Texture's calculated uniformity mimicked Gothic architecture at the time. Second is rotunda. So this became apparent in the 12th century. It originated in Italy, and it's actually considered a sibling to textura in southern Europe. Its name was derived from the Latin word rotundus, a building that has a round floor plan, a rotunda. So it had more rounded strokes that mimicked this round floor plan, and therefore the letters tended to be more legible than textura. Next up is Schwabacher. So this version of black letter came into its own in the 15th century. It evolved from textura. It was similarly round like rotunda, but with sharper edges, and it was popular in Germany until Fraktur, coming up next, took over in the 16th century. But interestingly enough, Schwabacher was still used in conjunction with Fraktur, similar to the way we use italic type for emphasis today. And last up, we have Fraktur. So this was used in the 16th century to improve the legibility of type and make the characters more legible. So fracture comes from the Latin fractus, or English fracture, or broken. The letter forms are broken apart into independent strokes at different angles, and it's these varying angles that improve fracture's legibility. So the fracture style was still popular in Germany until the early 1900s, when new, more modern sans-serif typefaces were becoming popular. But Nazi Germany declared that these more modern typefaces were un-German and used Fraktur for their propaganda. So for that reason, it wasn't terribly popular after World War II because it was associated with the Nazi party. Let's get back to Gutenberg's specific rendition of black letter. So the textural black letter typeface used in the Gutenberg Bible was focused on two main things. The first of which was preserving scribal handwriting traditions that came before mechanized type. And the second was space optimization. You gotta save that cash where possible. So font fabric describes Gutenberg's original movable typeface as recognizable by its dramatic thick and thin strokes, some elaborate swirls and serifs, and the impression of texture of a woven pattern across the page. In an interesting nod to Gutenberg's practical nature, he actually did not claim the typeface as his own by giving it a specific name. So no Gutenberg bold here. Instead, his predecessors, some 500 years into the future, carefully mimicked his mimicking of scribal writing and gave birth to digital, accurate reproductions, such as typefaces called Bible, and 1456 Gutenberg, and Gutenberg Textura, to name a few. In regards to the actual process of crafting and sculpting each letter of the typeface, it's been described as having focused on automation, consistency, and recycling. 
So what I mean by that is the printing process enabled pages of previously only handwritten books to be printed again and again and again using movable type. Remember that Gutenberg didn't invent printing per se. Instead, he commercialized it. He took the concept of movable type, he took a converted wine press, and he figured out a way to create consistency on the printed page using his type mold. The type mold was his one true invention, his breakthrough, that was a system for casting type quickly and efficiently. There was a matrix, a mother or an indented mold, and a patrix, a father or an outdented mold, poured into to create individual letters. So there is an excellent documentary called The Machine That Made Us, where Stephen Fry travels to Germany to try and recreate Gutenberg's process, including recreating his technologies. At around the 30-minute mark in the documentary, there is an excellent visual of what Gutenberg's type mold would have looked like. Picture a little carved letter at the top of a long piece of lead, and this is called a punch. So a punch is like a master copy, and it's estimated that it could take an experienced punch maker an entire day to carve one punch by hand using a file. If a single page of type needs hundreds or thousands of characters, this is a long and lengthy process to create all the type needed. So Gutenberg wanted to figure out how to speed up this process of creating these punches. Enter his type mold. So Gutenberg's type mold, again, was the single new invention in this whole system of printing. It was made of these two halves that came together. Again, there was the matrix, as well as the patrix. The molten metal is poured into the cavity of this type mold and down into the matrix. The metal solidifies instantly and the type mold is opened and out pops an exact replica of the punch, the patrix. This is how so many letters could be made again and again and again, quickly and cheaply. So you only had to create one master punch, and then you inserted it into this mold, poured in the lead, popped it out, and did it again and again and again to make perfect replications of letters that you could use for printing. So you can think of this like drawing a beautiful letter by hand, creating that punch or that patrix, but using the type mold is allowing you to copy and paste and copy and paste and copy and paste exact replicas of your letter again and again with minimal effort. Approximately 270 characters were in Gutenberg's alphabet because of the alternate characters he created. For example, there were multiple different E's. He created multiples of the same letter or letter pairs to create a more uniform look overall. So that's why it took the better part of a year to just create the punches needed for his black letter typeface. And remember that it wasn't just 270 little pieces of type. Gutenberg had hundreds of pieces of each of the 270 punches, literally thousands of tiny pieces of type organized and arranged into words, into sentences that made up each page of the printed book. All of his alternate characters could be used in different situations, for example, for different line lengths, to achieve an overall visual texture and make sure everything fit in. And this visual texture was remarkably consistent throughout the book's more than 1,200 
pages. The Gutenberg Bible really is a feat of engineering and of art. The letterpress technology that Gutenberg used to create his Bible is actually not unlike children's potato printing. Stick with me here. So this is when potatoes are literally cut in half and a parent carves out a shape into the potato that extends from the potato. So a circle or a square or a star. So it can then be dipped into paint and stamped onto paper. The image area is raised above the non-image area just like a stamp. But in Gutenberg's case, it was lead instead of potato that was the carrier of Gutenberg's ink. It's important also to note that printing technology that included the mechanized typeface that Gutenberg used was not invited with open arms. Some saw it as a knockoff to the original thing, which were handwritten books. Scribes saw their roles in jeopardy, and for good reason. Now, more than 500 years later, in the age of modern computing, when most homes have their own printer, Scribes were probably right to fear for their jobs. We live in an age where any adult or even a child can typeset a page of text digitally and print it out again and again and again at speeds much faster and more efficiently than Gutenberg could ever have achieved. We've come so far. Thank you, Mr. Gutenberg, for your important contributions to an incomplete history of type. We could not have done it without you. From the Middle Ages to the Middle East, from Futura to Freight. Thanks for joining us on a journey across the type universe and going where no designer has gone before. Next up, let's travel back to the Futura. <laughs> <laughs>